Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 27. Psalm 27, hear now the word of the Lord. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. How are you at waiting? <laughs> Thank you. Waiting is hard. Especially when you know how to fix things. I know exactly what needs to be done here. So just let's get this thing done. Okay, we're done, right? Wait for the Lord. Now, this waiting is not a passive thing. Too often we think of, of all the gentle virtues as passive virtues. Waiting is not passive. Psalm 27 ends with the psalmist still in the midst of his troubles. There is confidence, there is hope, but my situation requires me to be strong and courageous. It takes courage to wait for the Lord in the middle of trouble. When everything around you looks bleak, when things, and especially when things, when you when you're so sure, certain, if we just did this, this, and this, then we could fix this. It takes strength and courage to wait for the Lord. Do you have the courage to wait for the Lord? If if you think about what we're, we've seen here in the in Book One of the Psalms, it becomes really clear that David's chief experience was one of suffering and affliction. We sometimes think of the heroes of Scripture as those whose lives were characterized by this intimate relationship with God, where they were always close to God and things were always, well, actually, yes, they may have been close to God, uh, but 
did that mean that therefore they didn't have any trouble? <laughs> well, all you have to do is actually think about the lives of these great heroes of the faith to realize actually their lives were characterized by trouble and suffering. If we take the Psalms seriously as our model for our prayer life, then we must say that the day-to-day -day Christian experience is actually more one of darkness than of light, more of suffering than of joy, more of the cross than of the resurrection, and yet always oriented towards the light, the joy, and the resurrection. So it's, it's, it, it's just that that doesn't change the fact that in the middle of things, it's hard. But the light, the joy of the resurrection remains the joy of the Lord, the joy that is our strength in the midst of the trouble. Psalm 27 is a song of confidence, but it's a confidence expressed in the midst of suffering. And it echoes as much that we've heard previously in the, in the Psalms we've been going through in the last few weeks. There's echoes here of Psalm 23. The, the paths of righteousness are, are echoed in the level path of verse 11. The valley of the shadow of death, the valley of deep darkness, is echoed in the day of trouble. But my hope is the Lord who is my light and salvation. And indeed, one phrase is taken almost verbatim from Psalm 23, dwelling in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And David pleads that he not experience Psalm 22 again. Do not forsake me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh God, please do not forsake me. And the goal of Psalm 24, ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in his holy place, remains the goal of Psalm 27, the vision of Psalm 27. Psalm 25, which we just sang to remind us of this, confessed the guilt and shame of the psalmist, asking God to pardon my guilt and forgive all my sins. But Psalm 25 ended with the same confidence. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And that same confidence remained at the heart of Psalm 26, David's prayer for vindication that God would declare him innocent so that he might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the, the fact that these themes all come back again in Psalm 27 does not make this just the same song all over again. Because Psalm Psalm 25 was the, the song of, of the lonely. Psalm 26 was the song of one seeking vindication at God's altar. And now Psalm 27 is the song of one who is seeking the face of God. Now, these things are all interconnected, but each song focuses on a different aspect of our Christian experience. And, of course, the reason why these are aspects of our Christian experience is because they were first aspects of Christ's own experience. We sing Psalm 27 because Psalm 27 was first true for Jesus. Our New Testament lesson comes from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, 
how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. What, what is it that you seek? What is the thing that drives you, that moves you forward? The other way of putting it is, what are you anxious about? What, what worries you? What keeps you up at night? What, what is it that sort of remains the thing that you're always thinking about? Well, I suspect for most, most of us, it's, yeah, we're concerned, concerned. Oh, that's a nice word. We're anxious. We're worried about our children, our families. We're anxious about broken relationships. We're anxious about a job situation that isn't going the way you planned. And when you're, when you're worried about something, when you're anxious about something, you, you want to fix it. You want to figure out how to make it right. But into our quest to save the world and figure out how to make everything right, Psalm 27 calls us to seek the face of God. Yeah. Psalm 27 starts with my situation. And my situation involves really three things. First, who is God? <laughs> Remember, in any situation you're in, God is always the most important person in whatever situation you're in. So just, who is God? What are my circumstances? And then, how do I respond to my circumstances? So when you're tempted to be anxious and fearful, I highly recommend the approach that the psalmist gives to us because uh, it's a good one. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Start there. When you're fearful and anxious, start there. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? We'll hear about the temptations. We'll hear about the circumstances. But that's not where he starts. Now, it's worth noting there are other psalms that do start with my circumstances. So there are times when you're in the middle of it, you can't, and you, and you can't get... But, but here David's teaching us and giving us a pattern for how do we go about thinking through these things? 
Start by remembering God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, of course, even when you say the Lord is my light, well, the assumption is that I'm in a dark place. Even when we're talking about God, even when we're turning our eyes to the one who is the light, it's not like I can escape my circumstances because where I am, it is dark. Lots of things can make you feel alone and in the dark. Maybe your friends aren't acting like friends. Maybe your marriage is going through a rough spot. Maybe your marriage is a rough spot. Maybe your job is miserable. Maybe you're not sure you're heading the right direction in life. Doubts assail you, fear and anxiety about the future, your future, the future of your family, the future of the country. Oh, we've we got lots of things to get anxious about. But the Lord is my light. Because in the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Why was light the first of God's creations? Ever thought about that? You can't really have anything else until you have light. Imagine a world without light. What's the first thing you notice? <laughs> well, you don't notice anything because you can't see. And without light, there is no heat. Without heat, there is no motion. So without light, a world is just a static void. Oh, right, like what Genesis says, and the tohu uh, vabohu, formless and empty. Uh, the, there's just, there's nothing, nothing's going to work. So in the beginning, God said, let there be light, because the created light is pointing us to something fundamental about God. He is the one who is the light. He is the one who gives illumination to all things, who gives energy to all things, who gives motion to all things. Everything begins with God. And that's why all created light points us to the one who is the light. So when you see the sun shining, and don't get, don't get distracted by modern scientific notions of what the sun is. The sun is pointing you to the God who is the light. And at night, the stars shining in the sky remind you that even though the sun's gone, God is still God. The light that shines in the darkness. Think of the pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel through the desert. Think of the, the sevenfold lamp in the Holy of Holies reflecting off the golden walls and that glow in the, in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Think of the Lord himself filling the temple in Isaiah's vision as the glory of the Lord shone forth. Truly, the Lord is my light. Or as John says, in him was life and the, light was, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or as Jesus says in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I have come into the world as light, Jesus says, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then remember where the story is going. Revelation 22. Night will be no more. 
They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Yes, I may currently live in the valley of deep darkness, but as David had said, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Okay, now we're ready to talk about our circumstances. Verses 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. This may, may sound at first like a military attack, but it's also worth noticing in verse 12, that verse 12 speaks of false witnesses, which uses more like courtroom language, which suggests that evildoers here, this refers to any sort of trouble. It's like we often see in the Psalms. The psalmists write in a way that you can put whatever circumstances you're in into the middle of the song because this is, this is the way God gave us these songs to sing. We saw last week that the psalmist hates the assembly of evildoers, and here you can see why. They are assailing me to eat up my flesh. That may sound like an odd way of putting it. I mean, as far as we know, there were no cannibals in the ancient Near East, but yet... Eating up one's, uh, people, someone's flesh, I mean, we, still have, we still talk about that. We, talk, we call it backbiting, but literally backbiting would be you know, chomping on somebody's back. But that's a very, it's a very vivid description of a very common experience. To eat the flesh of another person is to devour them with words. And we've, we've all experienced this Sorry to say, we've all experienced this on both ends of it because we've done it as well as had it done to us. When malicious words eat away at you, maybe you've watched somebody you love as they're worn down by ravenous wolves who are eating away at them. You don't have to be a cannibal to eat people. All you have to do is use your words, your mouth, to destroy other people. And that's why Paul will say that the reviler, the person who uses words to destroy, is as bad as the murderer or the adulterer. It starts with words, but words lead to actions. One person begins to speak evil against another. If someone else agrees and joins in the evil talk, then gradually the assembly of evildoers grows until they take action. But when evildoers assail, when slander and gossip eat into you, even then, David says, I will not be afraid. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I mean, this, this is stuff that literally happened to David. But he, he gives it to us metaphorically because this is true for all of us. Because the hosts that assail us don't, remember Paul's admonition, don't think of these as, as it's, it's, our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is against the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly places. And that's where those powers are the ones that are constantly trying to provoke us into devouring each other. And that's when those hosts attack. David says, my heart shall not fear. I will be confident. How can you be confident in those moments? Because Jesus has sung Psalm 27 before you. King Jesus was no exception to the afflictions of this life. His enemies sought to devour him. 
And King Jesus taught us a different way to think about victory. Because with with Jesus, his adversaries did not appear to stumble and fall in the slightest. His adversaries devoured him. They crucified him. But in the very jaws of defeat, our Lord Jesus triumphed because there was no way for death to hold him. And, and, And Jesus even taught us something very strange in the light of Psalm 27. Jesus said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. We have in Psalm 27 the problem of people devouring each other. And Jesus says, the solution is to devour me. We saw last week in Psalm 26 about washing hands in innocence. We heard about Pilate who washed his hands of Jesus' blood when he should have been washing his hands in Jesus' blood. Well, also in Psalm 27, we hear of the evildoers do- evil seeking to eat the flesh of Messiah, the anointed one. <laughs> Good idea. Just you're doing it the wrong way. You need to come to Jesus in faith, recognizing that he alone is able to feed us, that because he was devoured by the wicked, and yet he triumphed, He passed through death to resurrection. He was raised up and seated at the right hand of God so that now one who bears our flesh sits at the right hand of the Father. We need to come to Jesus in faith, recognizing that he alone is able to feed us. And Jesus reminds us that our our confidence is not that we will be able to triumph over our enemies. Our confidence is that Jesus has passed through suffering and death, that he has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in his heavenly temple. And so we can, with confidence, seek the one thing that he sought as well. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What is this one thing that David wants? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that echo of Psalm 23, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David does not seek after wealth, influence, power. No, he says, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. I want to inquire in his temple. Now, that may sound like three things, but... Those who believe in a triune God should understand that sometimes those those three things are actually one. Because if you dwell in the house of the Lord, then you are in the place where you can gaze on the beauty of the Lord. And you're in the place where you can inquire of the Lord and hear his word. When you're surrounded by foes, when you're besieged by the clamor of voices that seek to draw you away from Jesus, there is only one thing that you need. The beauty of the Lord. Our culture has turned beauty into something sexual. That's backwards. Beauty is supposed to be the big category. Sexual attraction, that's just one small part of it. I want to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Not just catch a brief glimpse, but to bask in the vision of God's beauty. When we see the beauty of God then we begin to see how all created beauty points to him. 
Now, it's often the case that we have to start by looking around us intentionally at the beauty of God's creation. Sometimes being able to just get out in a quiet place and just watch, watch a river flow, sit by a lake in, in silence. Many people's, whether they believe in God or not, will find that a refreshing experience. But when you use that as a time to meditate on the one who made all these things, and when you're watching for how each thing that you see reminds you of the one who made that thing and who made you, then your meditation on the creation calls you to remember the creator and to Behold his beauty. I mean, he created this world to be a picture of his heavenly temple. So when you're in creation, you should be seeing all the th- everything around you should be reminding you of the one who made all things. Oh, and by the way, if you're like, ah, I'm trapped in the city, I can't get out to nature. The buildings that we build are also designed to reflect this. They're also creatures. Man-made things are not sort of exempted from the things that God made. Man-made things are supposed to be part of our reflecting. So you can, you can sit and look at a building. Now, I'll admit, as I've gotten into historic preservation, I'm realizing more and more, wow, we do a really ugly job of building things over the last 50 years. And I'm really glad to say there's some people who are working on this. But it's just, we need to do better at creating spaces where we can see beauty. When we, when we go pure functionality for everything, pure functionality is very non-functional in many ways. It's because we need to see the beauty of God reflected in the things that we make and that people around us make. And our Lord Jesus is the one who set the pattern for us because he, he's the one who lived every day of his life gazing on the beauty of his Father dwelling in the house of the Lord. The Venerable Bede commented on this in the 8th century. Let us follow the path of his human way of life. If we take delight in looking on the glory of his divinity, if we want to dwell in his eternal home in heaven all the days of our lives, if it delights us to see the Lord's will and to be shielded by his holy temple. Seeing the glory of the, of the Lord, seeing the beauty of the Lord is then also connected with inquiring of the Lord, um, which in the Old Testament this referred to asking, okay, what should I do? And you may be in a situation, okay, well, I'll, I'll go to the temple and ask. And that's where inquiring of the Lord, wanting to know what God says so that you can do what God says. I mean, if if you claim to be seeking after God, but you don't want to do what God says, you're just playing games with God. That's why Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of living, his right way of relating, his right way of organizing your world. Then all these things will be added to you. So if you're not interested in, in doing what God says, then you're not really inquiring of the Lord. And for that matter, you're not really seeking the beauty of the Lord because his beauty, his truth, and his goodness are all woven together. To use the words of Paul that we'll be looking at in a couple of weeks in the evening service, that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so we hear in verse 5 the confidence of the psalmist in this quest. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Yeah, the shelter and the tent are both rather flimsy nomadic residences. But this language of hiding and concealing is contrasted at the end of the verse with being lifted high upon a rock. Yes, for now, I'm taking shelter in a, in a flimsy tent. But because it is my God who conceals me, he is the one who is my rock, my fortress, and he will exalt me openly and clearly in the end. I do not fear my enemies because I know that God will protect me. This is the voice of our Lord Jesus first, but then it's our voices in him. And so in verse 6, we hear the result of this. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Certainly this was true first of Jesus, the one whose head was lifted up because he is the one who offered the one and perfect sacrifice to the Father. And because it is true of Jesus, it is also true for us who lift up our sacrifice of praise to the Lord. We come into the heavenly holy of holies and sing and make melody to the Lord with shouts of joy. Now, in verses 7 to 12, we turn from meditation to prayer. As he's been reflecting on his situation and upon who God is, he now turns to meditate from, from meditating on the one thing that he wanted to praying for that one thing. Meditation is a good preparation for prayer to meditate on who God is and what he has said. Often we are so distracted by other voices that our, our prayers can get misdirected. And so starting with meditation on God's word, starting by reflecting and drawing near to him in, in our thoughts is important before we're even ready to pray. Our hearts are, are drawn after so many things. Our prayers become disjointed. We become uh, quick to, to pour out to God a, a quick shopping list of things we want. But what, what does David do? David comes to God seeking one thing. If you would be confident in prayer, learn how to pray for one thing. Because when you learn how to pray for one thing, then you begin to see how everything fits into this one thing. Because notice what David's meditation has done. He has said that there is one thing that he seeks, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that I may inquire in his temple. And now as he turns in prayer to the Lord, he returns to that one thing. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. There's the word of the Lord. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Now, when in, in, in verse 8, the command to seek is a plural command. So all of you are called to seek God's face. This is the one thing that you must seek. This is what Jesus meant when he said that the Gentiles seek all these things, but you are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you are seeking God's face, God's kingdom, God's temple, then all these things will be added to you. 
Does David want to be rescued from his enemies? Yeah. Does David want God's protection? You betcha. But he understands that he cannot obtain those things by seeking them. Because what happens if he tries to seek God's protection without seeking God? <laughs> I mean, like, like, how would you do that? Um, well, the way you try to do that is by, okay, I need an army. And I'm sure God will provide an army for me. So I'm going I'm I'm to go raise an army. David understands. No, the way that I, I want God's protection, I need God. You cannot get the things that you want by seeking what you want. <laughs> because God didn't make you for all those things. He made you for himself. And so all the things in life that you want, God knows you need them. He will provide. Seek him. Of course, sometimes we hear that and say, ah, so if I want these things, the way I can get them is by seeking God. Oh yeah, Satan loves it when you do that. Because now you're trying to use God to get what you really want. Good luck with that. Sorry, I said that a little sarcastically. And I know too many stories, live too many stories, of the pain that comes when we do that. When we seek other things and we try to use God to get what we want, it doesn't end well. Because this is where we run up against our worst enemy. My worst enemy is me. If we're honest with God and with ourselves, then we've often tried to use God to get what we want. We've too often prayed as those who are trying to obtain other things rather than seeking one thing. And that's why David's prayer turns out the way it does in verses 9 and 10. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Why does he say this? Because he knows he hasn't been very good at this. O oh, you who have been my help, Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Arnobius paraphrases this nicely. I have done such things by which you, rightly angered, have turned away from me, having been justly angered by my desires. But be my merciful helper. Do not turn away from me or look down on me, God of my salvation. But while I have fallen short, I still know that God is faithful. My father and my mother may forsake me, but the Lord will take me in. We come with confidence because you are the God of my salvation. We come to God seeking him, seeking his face, because we know that he alone can save us. 
But even as our gazing on the beauty of the Lord is connected to inquiring of the Lord in his temple, so also our prayer seeking the face of God is a prayer asking him to teach us his ways. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. When Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's what the psalmist means by teach me your ways. If I am seeking God's face, if I desire to dwell in his house, then I must also desire to know the way that I should live. This is why I inquire in the temple. I want to know what God says. It's about learning to walk in God's ways. To know his ways means knowing the scripture, knowing the word of God, knowing what God teaches us about how to live in his world. And then after praying to God in verses 13 and 14, the psalmist turns back to us and says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. My confidence is in God. He has promised that he will do good to me. And so I believe that he will do what he has promised. And this is what our Lord Jesus says to us. Because he is the one who passed through death and judgment to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He died. Yes. But he was raised from the dead. And he now sits at the right hand of, of the Father. And that's why we also would say that those those who have gone before us in the faith, they are not in the land of the dead. They are in the land of the living. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, the land of the living. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Our Lord Jesus has united us to himself. And so wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Be strong and courageous, like Moses said to Joshua. And now it is the theme of our Lord Jesus, the new Joshua, as he leads us into the new creation. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, help us to wait. Help us to wait for you and to turn away from our running after many things and help us to seek the one thing, to seek you. Help us for Jesus' sake. Amen.